Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending the 21st of April. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, journalist and writer Besha Rodell leads us through Melbourne's ongoing sandwich revolution. Then it's back to class to learn the advanced physical comedy of spit-taking. Harley Mann, founder of the First Nations-led contemporary circus company Na Janang, talks us through their physically demanding and powerfully connective work, Arterial. Vanessa fills us in on her trip to South by Southwest, journalist Jess Hill on the complexities of consent and her new documentary series Asking For It, and we reminisce on the glory days of the video store. And then we bow down at the feet of Greg Eingart's Barlow, Melbourne's reigning chili-eating champion before his big title defence, and we finish with our special Friday funny bugger, Geraldine Hickey, back on Breakfasters. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. For food include this week, we welcome back to Breakfast's journalist, critic and salad singer, Resuscitator, Beth Rodell. Morning. Good morning. Uh, gee, it's all happening out there in sandwich world. It is. We are living in the golden age of sandwiches <laughs> in Melbourne right now, which is really wonderful, if you what, ask me. What happened? I think a number of things happened. Um, a lot of it, as everything these days with food and culture and everything, is pandemic related, you know. Um I think a lot of restaurants, when they were just starting to come out of the pandemic or between our lockdowns, were looking for ways that they could, um, you know, make some money without having people in their dining rooms. Um, and quite a few places started doing sandwiches as a, a way to do that. Um, good example of that is Rocco's in uh, in Fitzroy. Um, they started out kind of as a sandwich pop up almost. They were they were serving sandwiches in an outdoor area, so it was kind of technically takeaway, but you could go in there and sit down and eat it. It was outdoors. Um, And that was not their plan originally. I'm sure that they were going to have a sandwich or some kind of sandwich component, but um, it was very, very popular. And now sandwiches are a huge part of their um, business still, even though they're a full service restaurant with, um, you know, wine and all that. Um, And then I also think that, like many of us, uh, some chefs kind of coming out of lockdowns decided that they liked being with their families (laughs) Um, and uh, having a bit of a better schedule. Um, And so they've taken all of their chef-y knowledge um, and decided to just do it with sandwiches instead. So if you look at somewhere like Jolly Good Sandwiches, um, also in Fitzroy, uh, that's an ex-Gimlet chef. You know, these are people who... uh, probably could have a job at a fancy restaurant, but A, they probably don't make that much more money at a fancy restaurant, and B, they get these great hours, you know, they're there until three in the afternoon, then they can go home. I don't, you know, I don't know that guy's specific story, but Mm. I have heard a couple of people kind of talking about how these more casual um, types of food, uh, you know, just make for a better lifestyle for yeah. people serving them. I have to give a shout-out to Pretty Little on Carlisle Street that started a sandwich shop out the back during the pandemic in a lame way, and I went there recently and it was closed because, of course, the pandemic lockdown's over now. Oh, no. And I mean, was... some of them survived. <laughs> yeah. That's sad, yeah. Well, I mean, they've, they're back in the restaurant out right. the front, yeah. so it's, yeah, yeah, that experiment's finished. What 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 other uh, trends have we noticed? How ambitious are sandwiches getting? I mean, they're mainly 
really good classics. Um, mm. We've got, you know, this Nana's place on, on uh, Nicholson Street or just off of Nicholson Street in um, Fitzroy North that is out of a house and it's just somebody making kind of Italian meatball subs in their backyard, basically, you know. Um, we've got uh, a lot of tuna melts, um, which uh, is such a specific art form and can so easily be too rich or too or not rich enough. I mean, I'm just, I'm fascinated with the tuna melt, tuna melt obsessed. Um, What is the difference? And I know there is one obviously between say tuna melt and tuna salad in terms mm. of your eating experience. I mean, tuna sal- a tuna melt can be made with tuna salad. It just has to be hot and it has to have cheese. It's basically a, a cheese and tuna toasty, mm. you know, a yeah. decadent one. If you were, like, reviewing them, are they, like, two separate categories in your professional opinion, a toasty and a sandwich? Yes. Yeah, I agree. Oh, I mean, you know, a toasty is a sub genre mm-hmm. of sandwich. Yeah. There's this whole debate that I don't know if it has made it to Australia in America about is a hot dog a sandwich? Oh no! Oh, God. <laughs> it's like this question that's like almost you know just philosophical. Like it almost like requires you to look to philosophy to yeah. answer well, that. Su- such is the significance of the topic. It's, yes. it's fitting that these kind of questions are being asked. And exactly. I was reading a lot about this particular subject in the lead up to our interview today. And some authors were quick to mention that the barn me should not be overlooked as well in this in oh, this kind absolutely. of story as one of the unofficial sandwiches of Melbourne. Oh, it is absolutely one of the unofficial sandwiches of Melbourne. Um, my brother wrote a story for Eda, which is a US website. They did a big Melbourne package a couple of years ago, and um, he was asked to write, you know, what are the classic dishes of Melbourne, and the banh mi was way up there. And I will say, having lived in other cities all over the world, I mean, we do the banh mi really, really well here. So, yeah, I think that has been part of it. We are primed, you know, to care a lot about sandwiches in Melbourne and banh mi certainly has a big place in that. And are there new favourites for you, would you say, in this current situation? For banh mi? Or, or even across the board oh, with the sandwich? Oh, there's so many. I, so I am a I'm a big proponent of the salad sandwich. Um, when I moved back to Australia from the US in 2017, um, there were very few salad sandwiches. And I think it was just one of those things that started to die out, probably with the milk bar, because the milk bar also mm. died out, um, that I was just kind of horrified by because it was such a huge part of my childhood. I, when I left, I was a vegetarian and I kind of the salad sandwich sustained me for the years before I left. It was kind of the only vegetarian food you could get in Australia at that point. Um, and I, I wrote a story about that for the New York Times, just saying, where is the salad sandwiches gone? Um, since then, the salad sandwich has come back with a vengeance, which is just fantastic. Um, really, really love that. Um, and uh, there's a couple of fantastic versions around town. Um, uh, Morning Market on Gertrude Street, the Andrew McConnell Cafe has a really fantastic version. And then, honestly, my favorite is just this... There's a milk bar in Mathtown Village <laughs> that is just a milk bar, but they have Turkish bread and they make a salad sandwich that costs like $6 and it's so good. I mean, it takes them forever because it's just like two people and they're running a whole milk bar that's kind of a little grocery store, but it is so, so good. Um, And the other... uh, There's a new place in kind of the other end of Carlton um, called Shooter McGavins, Mm. which is named after the guy from Happy Gilmore. (laughs) Um, And he's doing a, uh, a, a fried chicken, 
on a biscuit, which is, again, one of those things that I just miss from having lived in the South. You can't really find that kind of a biscuit, like, you know, like savory scone, basically, um, anywhere. So, and it is really, really good. It's uh, kind of mayo but not too much too much mayo is one of my pet peeves yeah that's what i was going to ask what are like the key elements for you that make up a really great salad sandwich i know for me a big thing is like i love a crunch element like i love iceberg lettuce yeah i love iceberg lettuce too and i think iceberg lettuce is a underrated lettuce because Mm. we all got too snobby about our lettuce but you know who wants rocket in a salad sandwich no um i'll take alfalfa sprouts I, i really like alfalfa sprouts i mean the big thing for me is you know it has to have candy beetroot otherwise it just isn't really an australian salad sandwich um apart from that i'm like go for it you know stained bread uh yes stained (laughs) bread that pink stain on the bread it should be like a national flag (laughs) on on the subject of salad sandwiches we did want to we got a text coming through and a huge shout out to murph at suntop plaza which is right near triple r actually who make exceptional salad sandwiches well yes oh good i was also wondering about uh numbers and ordering sandwiches through I've noticed some sandwich shops have eliminated the name of the sandwich because maybe some ingredients have a people have a bias towards them and they've stripped down to like you're just ordering the number 16 or 12 yeah I mean I think that that's smart it's also easier for them and I think there's probably a bit of a you know do we be clever about it do we have to you know name it something silly but I, I don't know but I think you know that's just a, a good a good way yeah. to what about an overrated ingredient? One that's oh. maybe a bit ubiquitous. Uh, I have this. God. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> like, stop putting tomato chutney on your breakfast sandwiches. Uh, it's sweet. It ruins 95% of the breakfast sandwiches in Australia. Just use tomato. Like, tomato is delicious. Mm. You don't have to make a relish out of it. Mm. It doesn't have to be... I just... I. It makes me mad. And then also... <laughs> I mean, mayonnaise is very important on many sandwiches, but it's also an overused condiment, I think. Sometimes, you know, butter is fine. Yeah. And how do you like them coming? Do you mind if they're stacked, the two halves are stacked on top of each other? I don't mind. And it depends. It depends on... There's so much about the kind of structural integrity of a sandwich and it's Mm. different for different kinds of sandwiches. Mm. Yeah. Because a lot of people, if they're making their own sandwiches to order... We get that our eyes are bigger than our stomach, maybe. Or... Oh, definitely. And I, I don't want a sandwich that you really can't get your mouth around. Mm. You know, it should be a portable. That's the whole point of it, right? It's a portable meal. That's that's why it is. Yeah. yeah. What's your favorite bread for the salad sandwich? I mean, it depends a, a lot, but I really do love that Turkish bread that mm. they use. Just the Turkish roll, um, as, as long as it's really good quality. I'll take, uh, you know, good sourdough. I'll take good multigrain. I'll take crappy white bread. I'll take Tip Top if it's the right kind of salad sandwich for Tip Top. Yeah. I've got a really good salad sandwich tip. It is amazing um, loafer bread. Oh, really? They've got a brilliant salad sandwich there. Yeah. You need it to be soft, I think, is part of the issue. You don't want it to be too crusty. Yes. We have a shout to Dre's off Sydney Road who (laughs) says, as a New Yorker in Melbourne, please don't disregard the packaging. Butcher paper and cut in half, please. Not a takeaway box. Well, here's my... my sandwich, like, wish for Australia. You hear about 
um, chefs going to Mexico and learning about the tacos. And we've got so many, you know, New York-style pizza joints and chefs going to Texas and learning about the barbecue and coming back with this. Like, some chef, or like many, I don't care, should go to New York and go to all the delis and have all the sandwiches Mm. because we really are missing the New York-style Italian sub and it is one of the world's great sandwiches. Um, We can kind of get it... You can get it in WA with the WA version, which is called a Conti roll, which I could talk for 20 minutes about the difference between the two and how they kind of came up at the same time on opposite sides of the world, which is wild. But but it's still not exactly that New York-style deli sandwich. And, And those sandwiches, I mean, I... I could live on them. They're so delicious, and and you should be able to kind of, you know, have it however you want, have whatever meat you want. Um, There's a couple places here who are trying to do a Conti roll or do a kind of Italian thing with lots of stacked meats, but nobody has gotten it quite right. All right. Well, if you ever instigate a fact-finding sandwich mission to New York... Oh, man. Somebody fund that. I will will take a cadre of people with me. Is it Carnegie's Closed? Yeah, but I'm not talking about that kind of deli. No, I know. I'm not talking about a Jewish deli. I'm talking about a neighborhood bodega that just is like the milk bar of of uh, America and, you know, is Italian, not Jewish in, in origin. Yeah, oh, yeah. mouth-watering and amazing. Uh, <laughs> Bish Rodell, thanks so much. Thank you. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. I have been practising um, the spit take. <laughs> so for those of you who are not familiar with the spit take, it's a comedic technique. It's where you suddenly spit out a liquid, usually, yet yeah, that you're drinking because you hear something funny or surprising, used often in films. and. So even if you hadn't heard the phrase before, you probably encountered it on a television show or in a film. A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It came up because um, I was invited to a party and there was a competition. There was like, there's going to be a talent show. But (laughs) before the talent show, there was going to be anyone could get up, like volunteer themselves to do... um, a spit take. Oh, that's they, great. Yeah, they would award, yeah, the best. You spit really take. know the pandemic's over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so true. I didn't even think and of that. I, I, it's, it's good times. Spit was, take competitions are back. That's right. I was wondering is the fact that it wasn't part of the talent competition itself a recognition that it exists in its own category? Absolutely. Like, okay. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's an, it's an art form. Well, it is an art form. It seems to me that some. So I've encountered it many, many times, and it seems something that's universally appreciated as humorous because of the unexpected nature of it. It's spontaneous. It's amusing. Yeah. But it does occur to me as a very complicated technique to, to Yeah. I mean, there's definitely things, little, like... Um Things you can try, absolutely. But I've been practicing in the bath. Oh, that's yeah, nice. so it's great. You can have <laughs> like a little comic good environments to practice. Yeah, definitely. You can have a beer after a long day, um, or a beverage of your choosing. Yes. Um, well, hang on, what? What you're you spitting out beer in your own bath? I mean, I'm spraying. I'm not like. Uh, but it's in. Your, then you're spitting it into your own bath water. I mean, it's... Or is this a wet space bathroom where you can yeah. spit take out into the sort of sauna area? Do you have a spit take bucket? 
No. I mean, it's just a spray, Daniel. It's fine. I mean, I'm not gulping. It's, I mean, it's only a small amount of liquid because this is the thing. This is the key to the technique, okay? Yeah. So I think the best spit takes are the ones that, okay, so there's different kind of styles you can do. You can do back into the cup, like if you're drinking out of a glass or I something see. like that. So you could do the... <gasps> Oh, yeah. The, yeah, dance, which is, I think, maybe the easiest. I think the most effective is the spray technique. Yeah. Um, so the key to that is you take a sip, or this is what I've found, you take a sip of the drink and then you have to swallow a little bit and then you um, you have to kind of just spray, kind of like purse your lips out. So, so it's that... not a lot of liquid falling in the bar. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not dribbling beer, but look, if I was, that is my prerogative. No, I know. And so <laughs> my bar. And could we go briefly back to the party itself? And mm. so this was the catalyst for your yes. your engagement. Now the party has passed, and I missed the spit take competition. I see. But it got me thinking about it. Mm. I wasn't familiar with the term spit take. Like obviously, I'm familiar with it. I've seen it. My partner's like, we should partake. Mm. And I was like, fantastic, because I pride myself on being, I can do a great fake sneeze, um, a fake hiccup, and a fake yawn. So I was like, I feel like a spit take is in my wheelhouse. I yeah, feel like this will be it. great. And he's like, no, 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 no. You will you will say something and I'll do the spit take because that's the art of the spit take is a joke. I go, no. It's, oh, I see, of course, because the yeah, the onus on you to say something or do something amusing. I'm like, no, that's not what it's about. <laughs> the spit take is about performing the spit take regardless of something <clears throat> being funny or shocking. Would you both agree? Oh, no, I think there needs to be the inciting incident. <laughs> yeah, there has Like, to... we need to see under the people and I'm pregnant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very good, Daniel. Yeah. Daniel, wow, it's <laughs> I'm just going to call it now and say it's going to be, it's got to be your um, buzzer for the, uh, oh, for the quiz now. Oh, I see. Tape. So I'll start looking for the great examples online. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but I think it's got place um oh but like if you were to perform the spit take if it's a competition for a spit take Mm. i would say that it's like despite the comment or the shock like yes i understand that's how it functions but the performance is being able to to do it regardless to elicit a spontaneous and uninspired well uh, not not to get too complicated, I suppose, but Dr. Brown, his finale is a double take, right? Uh-huh. So he spends a while doing double takes over a banana. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. So, and, I'm, and, I'm laughing Yes, already. and so the humour is the fact that in that respect he's so perplexed and his attention is totally grabbed by something incredibly banal. Mm. And without the banana, it's... You, we're just practicing the mechanics of a physical act. Yeah. So even even if we maintain the setup of like someone going, Ooh, and then every contestant is doing a spit take, I feel like we just need the the, the, the slightest of, as you say, inciting incidents. Something to react yeah, against. Yeah, you could say a line, but the line doesn't necessarily have to. Like, I just feel like the onus is got to be on. The performance of the spit take. I mean, actors would have to perform the spit take over and over again. You know, you could say, Judy, but it's a rose. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's Uh, irrelevant what's said in terms of a competition. I I find this discussion itself a fascinating Mm. philosophical conundrum. Isn't it? (laughs) Well, I think everybody should get the same instigating prompt. Oh, okay. uh, To keep it fair. 
Ah. And so everyone who's partaking in the spit take competition gets the same, you know. But Judy. Yeah, yeah, Judy, you, you know, look like fell a off the Ferris wheel. Yeah, yeah. look like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Uh, I wonder if something's so... You don't, Judy. You don't look like a raisin bean. <laughs> yeah, do we have listening. to make it as neutral a statement as possible? That in and of itself could be seen as distracting from the performance of the spit take mm. if it was something so perplexing as that or yeah. potentially surreal. That's right. I think as well the spit take's got maybe a place in just everyday life. Like I mm. feel like you could kind of bring it back, you know, if you're having a, a coffee or something with an old bigoted family yeah. member or something. Well, you know those jokes where someone will repeat a punchline and it's it's funny and then it becomes ludicrous and then it's so ludicrous it becomes funny again. Spit-taking, I feel, went through a period where people would, excuse me while I, you know, I've just heard this amazing news, or this big news, excuse me while I have a sip of Coke, and then I spit-take. And it's the delayed reaction. I feel like series, like, I don't know why I have this memory of Arrested Development. That's doing, right. Yeah, yeah, doing something like something, this. Yeah, oh, so okay. the ironic spit-take. And maybe we're at the hump where, like, we're back to the original vaudevillian... Spit-take. You know, Graham Kennedy, <laughs> IMT, Mike McCall Jones, yep. classic spit-take. <laughs> Look at this. Yeah. A masterclass. Yeah. I love it. I think um, you're onto it. Do you have a favourite spit-take? You just wheeled off a lot of names there. Uh... Yeah, uh, I think if it's in if it's in black and white, (laughs) Melbourne's own Triple R. A graduate of the National Institute of Circus Arts, performer Harley Mann has worked with leading contemporary circus companies, including Circa, Circus Oz and Casus, and in 2018 received the Melbourne Fringe Award for Best Emerging Circus Artist. Harley is the founder of Narjanang Circus, who showed Common Distance, was nominated for the Green Room Award for Best Circus, and in 2021 premiered a sold-out season of Arterial as part of the Year and Boy Festival. Now, Arterial returns to Northgate Town Hall this April to tell us about it, the circus artist and Doyen of the Diablo joins us now. Harley, welcome <laughs> to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No Can you take us back to the founding of your circus and why you were driven to take on that responsibility? Uh, uh, yeah, totally. I mean, it was a kind of one of those things that uh, was a little bit symbiotic and also kind of a little bit of a, an accident. Um, while I was at, at NICA, I was studying and, and looking for an opportunity to uh, kind of hone my craft and take the things that I was learning at school and directly apply them to, uh, you know, the industry and, and really kind of flex that muscle. And while doing that, I really kind of noticed but really kind of was reaffirmed of this kind of lack of First Nations representation and, and cultural storytelling within our sector. Uh, and so as a part of that, we've, we've worked really hard to, to drive uh, forward to create spaces and opportunities for First Nations artists to, to engage with the circus community, uh, mostly because it just makes so much sense. It's got this kind of uh, this sense of, you know, cultural and physical storytelling are really similar. They're, they really come from a, a similar place in the same place. And you, you see young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, running around, they're so dynamic, we're so kind of agile and flipping and jumping in it. And it's something that's uh, inherent within our, our people. And so creating a, a company that could harness that energy and that kind of drive to tell stories and 
and do that. Yeah, that's fa- so fantastic. And we, we love reading, I suppose, the mission yeah, uh, statement that you had included in a press release that Nardinung Circus aims to develop work that utilizes the next generation's social and political attitudes to challenge uh, perceived ideas mm. about contemporary Australian society. Can you talk a bit about how you're exploring that and sort of carrying that momentum through the work of the circus? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question for what is it, 7.45 in the morning? <laughs> um, but essentially what I think is important about kind of art and and storytelling is that it's about people and, and it comes from, you know, us and, and our hearts and our souls. And, and it for me, I, I've always sort of seen within the art sector this kind of uh, boys club of, of stories. You know, it's quite elitist. A lot of our kind of major artistic directors are uh, elderly, cis, hair falling out kind of men. And, and it's really... It leads to a kind of a, a, a monotone sort of storytelling space, and, and for me, I wanted to um, just create opportunities where people could just be themselves. And as a result of working with people that don't look the same, the stories we make don't sound the same. Absolutely. And what are you doing with Arterial uh, in the show to kind of to tap into that? So Arterial is uh, an all uh, Aboriginal performed and directed work, uh, and what it was about was kind of trying to to show and celebrate the interconnected, inter sort of personal relationships uh, that First Nations people have with each other, with country, with culture, with history, and doing that in a way that um, really really celebrated. You know, at the time when we made the show, it was maybe between the first and the second lockdown, and it was a, it was a time when. All of a sudden, the kind of the world, uh, not just the First Nations community, realised what a lack of connection felt like, kind of in a really real way, uh, and we were all kind of desperately hungry for you know a sense of community, a, a sense of place, a sense of uh, connectedness, and it just illuminated something that I think a lot of First Nations people deal with constantly. You know, despite um, being in lockdown, it's this kind of separation and detachment from country and community and culture but it's also this thing that is is really easily not easily but when it's refound and rediscovered and connected with it it's rich and kind of raw and, and it's something that um makes our culture so strong and mm. inviting and exciting absolutely and in the title itself arterial of course as you just mentioned uh, that there is a, a real emphasis on connection uh, inspired by the idea of you know arteries in the body and in all natural systems mm. um, we'd love to sort of hear a little bit about the form of the work itself and yeah. how it's evolved because we understand that it has gone through a number of different changes yeah so when we made the show originally you know we were in a different place in time um, and this show for me kind of is very much, I mean, all my works are, are about the people inside it, but this one particularly is kind of uh, a reflection of the artists. And I really believe that as performers, we sort of, we strive to find our own vulnerabilities and, and kind of give a little piece of ourselves to to the audience. Uh, so kind of coming back to the work in a, what are we, are we trying to say? It's post-pandemic world um, where where things have shifted and changed and the artists have grown. Like I, I even see it in myself, you know, being 
two years older and just kind of going, oh, geez, I've got more gray hairs. And this is like actually a, a different work because it has a different resonance because everyone's lived kind of new experiences and the sort of subtleties of the acrobatics and the storytelling um, start to emerge in different ways and, and shape it into a kind of more current, more... Uh, reflective work for now. Beautiful. To remain connected, which is obviously important in what you do, did you, were you all house swapping and joining together? Mm. Mm, yeah, well, funnily, we, we were making two works during COVID um, and we, we ended up doing a little bit of that where you kind of, everyone moves in and you've got eight people in a house. Uh, everyone's kind of bunking in and then in the background or in the backyard, sort of training on the streets. We had the police called on us a few times <laughs> because everyone thought we were having house parties. But we, we were like, we're not. We're just, there's just a lot of us... Crashing. We're rehearsing. <laughs> yeah, excuse it's me. It's a circus. <laughs> yeah, yeah but literally. <laughs> yeah. So uh, now that you're all together, what what's it like putting this show on? Are, you, are, there, are there injuries? Are there, you know, is it as exciting and dramatic as it seems from the outside? I mean, we go through a lot of kind of rigorous training, right? I think there's a an emphasis on safety and that's always, um, and that's kind of physical, cultural, emotional. It's all about kind of making sure that the space is safe for, for the story to kind of unfold. Um, I think it's still very dynamic and exciting to make, you know, I've actually never seen the work until now I used to perform in the work and now I sort of sit out of it. And and that's a kind of a a really different shift because all of a sudden you're out of control. You have to just sort of (laughs) watch it unfold and, you know, the kind of the near misses, the acrobatics that are kind of definitely safe but on the edge um quite you know i think i feel a little bit like a sort of general public audience member all of a sudden i'm like oh geez (laughs) grabbing onto the seat just like yeah uh and now what's happening saturday so on saturday we've we're we're trying this thing uh which is our our blackout uh we called it a a effing blackout because I, i thought it kind of needed a sort of a sense of grit to kind of go yeah actually we're, we're claiming some space here and we're we're having a night where everyone's welcome but especially we're we're encouraging first nations mob to to come along uh see this show uh see it in a space where there are other black fellows you can kind of connect and and you know talk about discuss the work but also just have a have a great time have a bit of a boogie listen to some some music after the show and hang out um and that's been supported by uh, Darabin and, and they've been really generous in, in making sure that our, our mob tickets run across the whole season and for that night to, to make sure that anyone that really wants to connect to the work uh, has the opportunity and the access to. Absolutely. All right. Well, Arterial is back. It's on North Town Hall Arts Centre from April 20 to April 30. Where should we go? Darabin Arts. <laughs> North Town Hall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for tickets, and we've been speaking to the founder and brains behind Najanag Circus and the show Arterial Harley Man. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Triple R. Huge tech news. Vanessa DeHolk is back on Breakfasters. Welcome home, Vanessa. Thank you so much. <laughs> Lovely to see you, Breakfasters. Your, your happy, shiny, wintry faces. Yeah. <laughs> well, lucky for some. Where have you been? Oh, look, uh, spent 10 days at South By in uh, Austin, Texas, as we spoke about a few weeks back. It is an iconic festival of cutting-edge tech, film, music, education and culture. I was there for the tech, and that's hmm. what I'm going to speak to today. All but right. obviously, let's take it for granted that the Aussie bands were awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
This year, there are over 300,000 attendees, just to give you a bit of sense of the scale. And um, I was there as part of almost 30% of an international contingent, which is up on regular times, which is interesting. It was kicking off just as news of the Silicon Valley bank failure was emerging, which really set the tone for the festival. You know, crypto and NFTs were out. AI-dominated conversations. There's no doubt we're in an AI hype cycle right now. Um, they did a fairly creditable job of covering it well and giving you, you know, some new information or, you know, putting things in front of you in a way that was, um, you know, that you hadn't heard things before, which is difficult to do in, in an area with so much coverage. We heard from Greg Brockman, who's the co-founder of ChatGPT and president of OpenAI. Um, so that was... I've never seen people queue on multi-levels of a conference centre to get into a session. I confess I did not start queuing early enough and I was in the queue when they said, sorry, guys, you're not making it, and we all went and watched it on stream. Mm -hmm. So that's how weird it can be, even though you can fit thousands in the main ballroom. But um, it was still amazing to watch. Uh, another highlight was Microsoft's John Maeda, who is famous for publishing design and tech reports he started publishing them in 2015. Um, he's worked in a lot of interesting places like Kleiner Perkins. He's currently, um, I think, VP of uh, Design and AI for Microsoft. Uh, spends half of his time in Tokyo, uh, creates weird art exhibitions with analogue and digital tech and stuff in his free time. He's really wildly creative, very entertaining, deserved a keynote, <laughs> stunning. Um, the great thing about these presentations is that uh, by and large, like tons of them are available online still. So you can go to sxsw.com and listen to a lot of audio or you can go to their YouTube channel and watch a lot of videos. Even better than that is that have this thing called the South By Studio. And so after people have done their publicly facing sessions, they'll whip some of them off into another little room and do like an on the couch or a one-on-one -on -one or something interview with tons of them where you get different sorts of insights. One of the people they brought onto the couch was Douglas Rushkoff, who's an author. He's just written a new book, um, Survival of the Richest Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. So when you did want something a bit lighter than what's actually happening with tech you could go and engage with something like this and be like, yes, isn't it ridiculous? How much of New Zealand do they want to buy up? Yeah. Uh, and, and have a bit of a laugh. But then also, you know, have a look at, gosh, what's actually driving this? Do we want to be in a world where tech billionaires are thinking they're planning for the worst? Like that is not the visionary leadership that I want to see yeah. in my world. So it's important to question these things. Um, a real stunning presentation was by Amy Webb. Uh, she gave her emerging tech trends um, presentation. Now, I'm not diving into any of these because if any of them, you know... Pick your interest. Yeah, exactly. You can go look them up. But just look out for Amy Webb. Um, perfect name for working in that industry. It was, you know, nominative determinism <laughs> at play um, and, and very good. Uh, WB on that web if you look her up. So the other topics, other than AI, things that really got me interested were things like ethical use of data. Uh, that was often mashed up with AI, but in lots of other ways too. There was a real stream on clean energy and green tech, how we're dealing with um, e-waste, um, you know, how people are, are walking the line between do we build solar panels to last forever or do we build them to be repairable and modular and, you know, what is the best trade-off to take advantage of emerging tech as it goes on? You know, so really clever debates and the people in the room were people who were 
like on the federal committee informing for the White House on what US policy should be. You know, so sometimes it was just impressive. So, mm. Yeah, not abstract conversations, but rather sort of industry yeah, leaders. Yeah, yeah. And here's, here's the policy-led discussions happening at a high level that are actually influencing worldwide ability to make changes in these spaces. So I think that's what made me so inspired about being there. And it was really difficult to pick... What should I go and see? Mm. You know, where am I going to put my attention? What do I care about in the world? What will I be working in in five, ten years? You know, where is this going? Who do I want to meet? What conversations do I want to have outside these sessions? Because sometimes it's just who are you sitting next to in these rooms? Like, exactly. just incredible. So like you got fear of missing out and you were there. Oh, yeah. my gosh. <laughs> I think, and I think there was that confessional, you know, within the first 24 hours for people who'd been there, this is the first time you're like, I knew how big it was, but I still didn't know how big it was, mm. that, that idea that you have to adapt and then accept and sort of go with the flow and get back into your, how do I follow my nose in this environment? What does that look like? Where do I know something hot is happening? And how do I escape painful conversations? You know? yeah. Did you stick to your plan? I did. You were going to see? Okay, yeah, I was yes, curious. Yeah. I did. Um, so I saw Kara Swisher, who's a podcaster, not without her flaws, you know, I'm well aware, but... Um, but really a, a dynamic um, uh, media presence and mm-hmm. it was just quite gratifying to see them in person. Interviewing co-founder of Instagram, Kevin Systrom, who did not have, you know, the uh, the classic um, completely egomaniacal uh, co-founder personality, which was refreshing, mm-hmm. and, um, and had some, you know, sensible things to say about um, uh, bank failures and cryptocurrency failures and – but also about – trying to disseminate news in this world and validate news and uh, his new offering is Artifact and it's all about, you know, verified news. So how do you escape disinformation? Um, Was diplomatic about Twitter and Elon Musk, but the shade was there. Mm. Uh, Incredible stuff. Um, Actually, one thing I was going to ask is mm. obviously you follow these issues and topics very closely at a distance, but you mentioned before that being there gave you some new perspectives or maybe some balanced views on topics which you had thought about before but maybe hadn't sort of been aware of. Were there any, yeah, uh, sort of conversations that really have stayed with you and changed your mind about things? Um, I think they've honed some some ideas. Um, I think the maturity of how people are cutting through hype on an issue is really important in technology where we do tend to be very easily enthused and I'm guilty of it too, you know. Um, I remember really early on my days at Byte getting accused of... Um, talking about something with breathless enthusiasm. I thought, okay, guilty as charged and I'll try and watch that. And I think some of the best commentators like um, Emily Bender weren't necessarily at this conference but they were responding to what was coming out of it and then talking about uh, worrying signs, for example, the um, personification of AI and founders... um, almost setting themselves up to absolve responsibility for what they're, they're, they're doing by saying, oh, you know, talking about it like a child. Oh, it's learning, it's playing, it's growing, it's going to make mistakes, you know, that sort of thing where you go, well, it's not a child, you know, this is something you've put out intentionally and um, there are powerful critics um, like Timnit Gebru who uh, look at ethics in data and AI um, who've been raising, you know, the, the alarms when they've been inside some of these organisations and then our 
arrested um, for, for doing so. And, um, you know, there, there is a real tension going on between, um, yes, let's get excited about possibilities and let's, you know, push things to solve problems in new ways, but let's also... Um, understand what we're talking about and where the real limits are and the responsibilities to put in ethical guardrails. So there was lots of more nuanced discussion there. I felt like lots of people weren't swept up in hype, um, which is which I'm really relieved because it could have been a real hype cycle there. Absolutely. Yeah. And do you have, feel an obligation to bring that energy and all of those, we'll call it learnings, to Australia <laughs> and your network? And Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, there's plenty of people in Australia who know more than I do about, you know, all of these different niche areas and, and how, to, how to navigate these things. It's more that, you know, we're stronger collectively. So how do we raise the tone of discussion? And that's the sort of thing that we try and do on Byte, you know, try and have a real community focus to have how we're looking at where the tech hits people, hits the road and how it's showing up in our lives and what it's going to do to changing our jobs, you know, how we're going to afford to live when AI takes some of these things out. You know, tech people are getting increasingly interested in um, UBI, so um, universal basic income type approaches because they think, well, what's going to happen to the tax base in all these countries mm. if all this sort of work effort is then going to machines? You can't tax a machine. Mm. So so how are we going to well, they you know, fund societies? They'll be in New Zealand. So <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly, yes, it's a real concern. Uh, any, any concluding impressions? Because we uh, want to talk to you all morning. Look, look concluding, um, up next is South by Southwest in Sydney in October from the 15th to the 22nd. It's the first time the franchise has moved outside of the States. Um, I've started to hear more language. They had a booth in the convention centre where they were talking up Sydney and all these pedicycles had, like, Sydney South by Southwest on it, which was exciting for us. And uh, they are talking about it as a Southeast Asia hub. And that is really promising because we don't want it to be an inward-looking thing. These things have to be very inclusive. Um, so there's, there's great potential there. I have high hopes. Um, it's a logistics machine and it's quite amazing what they managed to do. They're not without flaws. Um, you can hear I mentioned quite a lot of gentlemen presenters here and in the tech side I'm afraid that there was still a real bias towards, you know, white men. But, um, look, keep working on it, keep doing what you do, um, be open to ideas it's a great magnet for, for really creative, um, interesting people trying to do some good stuff. So, yeah, what a win. Amazing. When are you back on the radio? Uh, I was back last week. Yep. And um, um, you can catch us up on stream. I'll be back Wednesday night as well. On Bite and, Into uh, It. Yeah. Vanessa, thank you so very much. Thanks very much. Great to be back, guys. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Jess Hill is a journalist, author and documentary maker whose work has been recognised with two Walkley Awards, an Amnesty International Award and three Our Watch Awards for excellence in reporting on violence against women and children. Her first book, See What You Made Me Do, won the 2020 Stella Prize as well as Adult Non-Fiction Book of the Year from the Australian Booksellers Association before being adapted into a three-part series on SBS. Now, Jess is back on the small screen with Asking For It, which explores the red-hot national conversation around sex, consent and power and to tell us about it, the writer and presenter joins us on the line now. Jess, welcome back to Breakfasters. Good morning. How are you? We're, we're great. Where are you at in this conversation? And culturally, where have we come from? And what does your documentary address? 
Well, I, I really consider myself to be a guest in this conversation. Um, when I was working on family violence, you know, I spent like five years kind of really hunkered down, getting to the bottom of, of how and why that occurs. With this, I, I came to it sort of, it's like, you know, an issue that's adjacent and very much like, you know, in, involved in family violence, but it's adjacent to it and it's very different. And I came to it in the year of... 2021, essentially, um, which was the year most Australians came to the issue of sexual violence in a pretty shocking and sudden way um, when, you know, not only did we have Grace Tame become Australian of the Year, but soon afterwards, and, and as a result, Brittany Higgins came forward and made her allegations, and then we heard about the allegations against the then Attorney General Christian Porter, and I think because the issue of sexual violence had come not only right into the centre of, of Australian culture through the Australian of the Year, but also to the centre of Australian Parliament, it just blew people's minds. And so by the time of the Women's March in 2021, the anger was like electric, like people were on the streets disclosing things that they had kept secret for sometimes, sometimes years, sometimes decades, entire lifetimes. Um, and so that year... We sort of we remove almost removed the taboo on on sexual violence, and you know I mean we really had aside from you know advocates that have been working for decades as a culture we just didn't really talk about it, and so this like documentary basically has come at a time where we've now spent two years really in the weeds of sexual violence, talking about it, learning how to talk about it, and learning how to listen to survivors talk about it. And that's why this is the right time for this documentary to come out, because Australia is ready for it. Absolutely. Such a, a timely and very necessary conversation and an extraordinary series that, as you mentioned, covers all of these topics in great detail. And it's framed in some ways as as an extension of this conversation and certainly a movement from our understanding of you know, the, the sexual liberation of the 60s and 70s into this age of enthusiastic consent. And certainly that consent idea is key and something that I suppose is very necessary to understand but hasn't always been properly understood or taught about. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your sort of exploration of consent and, and the organisations that are sort of really promoting an understanding of it in the series? Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, um, I came to this, like, obviously, we, we really just had to start this whole thing from scratch and figure out how do you not only really, like, understand consent, but how do you convey that on screen? Um, and we were incredibly assisted, especially in the first episode, by Lauren French, um, who works with Body Safety Australia, and they teach consent and sex education across the nation. And... Um, and then what they're teaching, I mean, they're teaching all ages from, like, three or four upwards. And, of course, they're not talking to three- and four-year-olds explicitly about sex, talking about body boundaries, they're talking about safety, they're talking about naming your, you know, your anatomy correctly. Um, and so, But the, the analysis she gives to a group of um, refugee students, many of whom are speaking different languages in the one room, about power is just like, that's what we need to understand, is that at the core of consent is power. Are you giving your consent freely or are you being coerced, groomed, pressured, intimidated into doing it? Um, and I guess that's what 
why people are confused about consent is not because it's that difficult a concept on the on the surface of it. It's like, you know, do you give or do you ask permission um, to do something, to have a hug or to, you know, to have sex or to do something in sex? Um, but all of the power imbalances and the grey areas as to why someone might say yes when they mean no or might say no when they mean yes, that's the sort of, that's all the cultural stuff that we've accrued, you know, over, and really, I mean, over, over millennia, but mm. let's just say since the sexual liberation, over the last 50 years where sex became something that did not just, you know, sort of happen between a husband and a wife um, primarily, but, you know, started to happen very casually where you had to make very important decisions with someone that you don't know and that you may have just met, um, and you don't know how, how they negotiate things like this. It's, it's, like, it's complex. And there's been, unfortunately, in, in as much as there's been a great freeing up of sex over those years, there's also been a, a huge price to pay. And I think Me Too really illustrated that, that the price to pay for a lot of women and, and many men too um, is, is bad and unwanted sex um, and, and you know, leading to also to assault. Yeah, I think it's so interesting, this conversation around consent. It's something that seems kind of so straightforward, but how much it is like embedded in our culture as well that it's the onus is on someone to say no, you know, and this idea of kind of gatekeeping that it's like that if they kind of need to say no, then it's like they are existing in a a constant state of consent, which is, um, yeah, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that? That's a great way to put it. (laughs) Yeah, that's something I uh, listened to on a podcast. I really shouldn't take credit for that. But, (laughs) but but, you know, I found that that really kind of resonated with me. Um, But going back to, like, the high-profile cases that you spoke of with Grace Tame and obviously the Me Mm. Too movement, like... Uh, you know, obviously there's such a, a high price for these women that, that come forward um, and, and share their stories. Do you find it, it, but it takes these kind of scandals and cases to um, create change in society and, you know, on a government and legal level? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. You know, and when we've seen that, um, certainly in the area of family violence, if you have a watershed homicide, you know, where it, where the where the state gets absolutely like um, appalled by by a particular murder, and of course in Victoria that murder was of Luke Batty in 2014, which led to the incredible advocacy of Rosie Batty um, in Queensland. It was the murder of Hannah Clark and her three kids, um, which led to the advocacy of her parents, Sue and Lloyd. You know, um, that also led to gigantic changes in both of those states. Um, where you don't have that kind of emotional resonance for for the public, it's harder for politicians to sell uh, a major initiative around domestic or or, um, or sexual violence. And at the moment, we see around the country sexual violence services drastically underfunded. They've been drastically underfunded for a long time. But the difference is now, and since 2021, reporting rates are rising year on year. There are more people seeking out these services because they're literally being told, you know, by the government through public education campaigns, we want you to report, Mm. we want you to come forward and we will be there for you. But surprise, we're actually not there for you. Uh, We haven't funded these services properly and they can't meet your needs, you know. Um, And obviously you have 
I mean, these services are just working themselves ragged trying to meet the needs of people that come to them. But, like, I mean, they're crowdfunding mm. to stay open. Um, and even the, the rape crisis hotline has had to sort of, like, come begging just to keep the helpline open. Um, so it's, this is not a tenable situation, especially for, you know, a federal government that says it plans to end violence against women and girls in a single generation. Mm. Your journalism sends you to some pretty confronting places, including this series online, uh, including the Manosphere. Do you have any insight into the popularity of this sort of content? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it varies, right? And I think it's, um, you know, to compare it to porn, there are some people who watch porn because they're aroused by it. There are some people who have come across porn and felt, sort of morbidly fascinated. Um, and it's the same with the Manosphere. There are some people who watch Andrew Tate and think, yeah, he really speaks for me. Um, you know, some guys, obviously, mostly, um, and who think, yeah, he understands, you know, how hard it is to be a young guy in today's world um, and that feminism is making life almost impossible. Um, but then there'll be other people who'll be like, oh, that Andrew Tate guy is so weird, but I can't stop watching him. It's like watching a car crash. But both people are getting kind of inculcated into this worldview um, through different means, you know, and it's, it's normalising a type of discourse. And there's definitely, you know, I've spoken to teachers who've been saying, like, the influence of Andrew Tate particularly on boys in their school is really frightening. Oh, and there's, you know, there's, I mean, when I went on that, <laughs> I went on, did a TikTok experiment for the, um, for the show, which was basically to just make a profile. You're a 13 year old boy. TikTok knows nothing else about you. Um, and just pause on things on, you know, clips that look like they come from the manosphere that are kind of misogynistic, um, or about power and control. And honestly, I just felt sick. And when they were asking me to sort of, you know, on, on camera, hmm, tell us about what you're seeing. And, you know, I'm sort of thinking there, I've got to kind of analyse this in some way and give some insight. And all I could say was, you know, if I were watch this all the time, I think I'd just be really stressed out. Because mm. I was just saying, I just felt flooded by it. It's, it's really horrific. And it's not just men making this content. It is women making content that's like hardcore internalised misogyny um, that's really playing into this whole thing of the manosphere where it's like it's men's job to be strong, it's men's job to be in control. Women actually like to be sexually harassed. You know, look at what happens when they don't get attention. You know, um, if they if you cheat, it's not because, you know, you're being unfaithful, it's just your nature. And if they complain, you should just tee them up the side of the head. How, you know, like that's the sort of stuff you're saying. Yeah, and you know, you talk about these young boys, or you know, and you know, young people watching this content. How important do you think, like, education is in the role of kind of tackling these kind of issues? Well, it's difficult because education is something that we like to define as something that happens at school mm. and and something that happens at home. Um, but education is happening everywhere, so so they are actually being educated on TikTok. Um, so you know, can other education that happens via school contextualise this? Um, for some people, yes, and certainly you don't you don't want to have the absence of context. Um, but for a lot of young people. Education is not going to change their attraction to this because, and especially young boys and men, and we talk about this in the series, if they feel really excluded 
from from this conversation and these conversations like they're getting you know speakers into their schools and in some cases or they're having these consent classes delivered and a lot of young boys and men even boys and men who consider themselves allies um in the in the feminist movement are disturbed by the way that some speakers are coming in and, and addressing them um and you know obviously you know incredible speakers like lauren french that are, are not doing this but there are some speakers who are going into these schools and really kind of conveying to boys that you know we don't want to hear about your difficulties this this is not about you this is about the difficulties of girls and women that you cause you know or that, that boys and men cause and a lot of these, like, 14, 15-year-old guys are just like, what the hell? Like, why am I suddenly a, a potential predator? Like, I haven't even become fully sexualized yet. Um, so I, I think that we have to be really careful that we don't drive accidentally young boys and men into these sorts of manosphere areas because they feel like that's kind of like a refuge uh, for them or somewhere where they feel welcomed. We definitely do not want to exclude them from this consent and, you know, and sex conversation. And we don't want to take a backward step. We want to educate about gender and power. We don't want to sort of pander, but we can't, um, we can't ignore the feelings of boys and men and we can't also just pretend that they're going to be educated from a place of shame. Because that just never works. Yeah, absolutely. The patriarchy is not serving them either. Um, yeah, exactly. Th- yeah, thanks so much, Jess. Yeah, that's been incredible um, hearing your perspective on it. Um, obviously, we've covered just for the listeners some some full-on and, and uh, triggering content. So if anything has come up for you during this talk break, um, there are services out there. Uh, the Sexual Assault Crisis Line in Victoria, um, which is 1-800-806-292. Uh, there's also 1-800-RESPECT, uh, 1-800-37-737-732. Um, yeah, and obviously as well, if you're in a position, a lot of these services do need funding as well. And for more on this issue, check out Jess Hill's new show, Asking For It. It premieres on SBS Thursday, 20th of April at 8.30. It's a great pleasure to chat, Jess Hill. Thank you. And with you. Thanks so much. Yesterday we were talking about borrowing things, so, you know, our personal style, some pitfalls, (laughs) um, the cardinal sin of borrowing, you passed on a book yeah. to someone else. It sounds like you committed a, a few as well. No, I'll call the second one a style actually because I can. I think I kind of am with you on that of um, borrow, ask later style. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also getting the impression of, that both of you feel the weight of obligation tremendously and you're very diligent borrowers in the sense that you emotionally invested in returning the item and it weighs upon you until that point. Yeah, to the point where I've opted out of it. I'm more than happy to, like, uh, lend my kind of possessions out, but I I don't trust myself because I know what I'm like, basically. Mm. I mean, I'll often accept... Uh, so, something loaned to me because the person who's loaning it is passionate about me having it. Yeah, okay. Which can be to your detriment. Uh, I was in uh, a, a foreign city and someone wanted me to have a TV. What? And so I had to schlep a TV like 20 blocks, like a heavy TV. Yeah. So it was a spontaneous gesture of generosity that you had yeah, to then accept. Yeah, they couldn't believe that I didn't have access to a television uh, because I was working in it at the time. And 
they insisted on giving me a TV but gave me no um, <laughs> means to transport <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Well, that's a, that's a whole other area, I guess, of borrowing, lending, being gifted is when it becomes more of an inconvenience yeah. to yeah. you but the person feels so much joy by giving it to you and then you have to hold on to it because if you were to see them again they'd be like are you enjoying the tv and you'd be like yes (laughs) i'm loving it the tv didn't work and so i would regularly lie about it working because i didn't want them to feel and i sometimes (laughs) was there any point at which it functioned or it just completely it just didn't function very well to the point of unwatchability so mostly a sea of white noise yeah yeah but i would sometimes watch television else and if television came up, <laughs> say that I enjoyed it on the television you'd loaned me. Essentially, you've just assisted them with, like, disposing of their e-waste, you know? Well, that's right. But I love that you kept up with television <laughs> <laughs> so that you could converse on the subject. No, I can't come to dinner. I have to catch up on some telly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a, a, an environment where, like, the exchange has was clearly is clearly outlined with borrowing items was a video store um and somewhere we have both worked daniel that's right i was thrilled to hear yeah Uh, all my older sisters worked there and then i came in oh wow Mm. were you kind of desperate from the job from day dot like are they gonna let me in were they like the gatekeepers no i never wanted to i remember at the time and then you know you you end up working sort of for free anyway, helping your yep. sisters out, and then it became official. Putting the videos back. Because my sister worked at a cinema, and she was like the gatekeeper, and I desperately wanted to work at the cinema. But mm. she, it was all her – it became like um, a real social job for her. It was like all became all of her closest friends. So she didn't want me working at the cinema. Anyway, I eventually got a job at the video store, and I absolutely loved it. Which one? What franchise? Independent? Uh, it was – Civic Video. It was first major video, then it turned into Civic Video, and this was in Frankston. I worked at a Civic Video too. Mm. I, w- I worked it too. Um, but that's the kind of borrowing I can get around where there is like... I mean, it's embedded in the business model, very yeah, much so. Absolutely. Did you frequent the video store? Very much so. And I'm hearing you describe your experiences working there, this is these are dream jobs. These are dream Cinema, jobs. Cinema, video stores, you have access to this wealth of cultural treasure. Yeah. It's amazing. A- absolutely. But I did used to it, – it did weigh on me, though, when um, – families especially would come in and be borrowing DVDs, VHS, um, especially on the weekends and I would see that they would have fives because obviously if you didn't return the DVD on time, you would incur a, a late fee and that was usually would go up by the day. I could never... Because you would see some real kind of Barneys at the counter. Barneys? Yeah. Oh, what does this mean? <laughs> like a, maybe like a fight or a parent telling oh, off the indeed, kids. Of course. It's like Absolutely. if someone was resp- – like there would kind of just be this process of who borrowed that? Like Fast and the Furious is five days late. Mm. Sorry, it's actually going to be $16 rather than 10 And then you would see it happen in real time like, all right, who borrowed Fast and the Furious? <laughs> you told me you were going to take it back. That's it. Nope. Put the chips back no pick and mix actually put the dvd back you would see this kind of spiral for these kids and so <laughs> awful, yeah. yeah i it used to i loved the job but that was i think the toughest part so for me. you would did people know that you're offering them dispensation no no they didn't so i would often not bring myself i would just 
it was kind of a bit cowardly what I would do. The only authority or like access I had in the system was that I could leave it. So I could press L so that the press fine would be diverted for the next That's time. That's fair enough. So they were none the wiser and it was more just I was just kind of lumping that emotional responsibility and weight onto another employee. Got it. Yeah. But there was also empathy at work because you were sensing that this could precipitate an yeah, emotional... Yeah, not on a Friday. Do <laughs> yeah. it on a Sunday. Right. It's a glum day already, midweek. They're mm. lucky to be there, mm. you yeah. know, getting an overnight, seven weeklies. But that's something I'm really proud of, like, not proud of, but something I'm so glad I've experienced. Like, I feel like, you know... As a millennial, like, you can hang your hat on video stores that you know that experience. Like, you understand delayed gratification mm. that you can't, you don't have access to what you, wanted, what you wanted to watch all the time. Yeah. I suppose I would turn into a bit of a class warrior okay. where, where if, I, if I clocked, it would, it would invariably be a fancier part of town or a richer suburb yeah. where they would allow fines to just accumulate and never pay them. Oh, what? And and then I noticed when the VHS was were there, who would rewind uh, and that, you know, so I'd get pattern recognition. Okay. So hang on, how do you mean it? Like you would, you would know who wasn't rewinding their VHS? That's right, yeah, because yeah. you can see, well, you can just see. When they drop it in, you put it back, it's like. Yeah. I remember when the DVD came out and the cleaning and the complaints and that was a huge time to work. Um, well, that's right. I mean, people would go home and play it and, and it scratch. wouldn't work and they'd have to come in oh, again. Yeah. Like that's not a fun Friday you had night. To, yeah, you had to manage a lot of yeah. expectations, emotions, but when it worked, it worked and, you know... What was it, a, it was thrilling. What was a movie that was on all the time? I... In the store. I can't remember. I used to watch because I used to work the Saturday shift during the day, so obviously it needs to be, like, um, appropriately rated. So Mm. I used to watch School of Rock on repeat. Oh, lovely. Yeah. I'm a real, like, creature of habit. So I'd be like, oh, only, like, two more School of Rocks until the end (laughs) of my shift. That would be the increments. (laughs) Yeah. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? Uh, It was all from pretty similar, The Wedding Singer. Oh, I loved The Wedding Singer. Mm. That was so So great. Oriented comedic films yeah. with hearts of gold. I remember a tough time, though. Not a tough time, but um, the video store was not far from my high school. And when Shrek came out, my boss used to make me wear the Shrek ears, and that was that was quite embarrassing. And they would sit out the back, and there was like CCTV, like there was a monitor out the back, and so I was always trying to take the Shrek ears off. Yeah, and right. he would come back out, and he's like, "Natalie, why don't you have your Shrek ears on?" It's like. I can't possibly like, imagine. Come yeah. see me. We have um, uh, maybe a pioneer of the Netflix and chill from a, a video shop perspective. A yeah. listener says that uh, my wife worked at a Blockbuster and that's where we met. Ah, <gasps> uh, mm. wow. I was a regular customer and her pickup line was, you can watch it at my place for free. <gasps> yes, I love that. It's an intimate space. You're sharing a lot. Power to the video store. <laughs> Triple R. Greg Iron Guts Barlow is the current Melbourne Chili Eating Champion, New Zealand Chili Eating Champion, League of Fire Oceania Champion and World Record Holder for volume of Carolina Reapers consumed <laughs> in one sitting. Next Saturday, the reigning local winner returns to the Bee East to defend his title and to tell us about his extraordinary spicy life. The uh, refrigerator mechanic joins us now. Greg, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. 
Wow. So a fridgy with a passion for heat. <laughs> well, it's not really a passion. It's just a weird talent that I have. Uh, yeah, never actually so I didn't know that I was any good at it. Went down to the BS the first, after our first lockdown and won the competition. Oh, this is pretty funny. Woke up the next morning to 100 missed calls and messages. Everyone's trying to get hold of me via Facebook and friend requests. And that's a little bit weird. Flew me up to Sydney. I didn't cure COVID. Like, what are you sending me up here for? There's got to be other people to do this. Went on TV, radio, New Zealand trips. This is all from eating chilli. I think it's hilarious. It's just a really unexpected development in your life. Yeah. And, of course, everybody has some, I suppose, experience of consuming chilli, you know, whether it's inadvertent, accidental, or if it's intentional. And we should say here, just to give a sense of the scale of your accomplishments, when Daniel mentions the Carolina Reaper, we have um, a unit of measurement called the Scoville heat unit, which is a way of quantifying how spicy a pepper is by measuring the concentration of capsaic- capsaicinoids, I believe. Yeah. So we have the jalapeno, and then the Carolina Reaper is 200 times that, and I think it's 2,200,000 Scoville heat units. So this is beyond the capabilities of most human beings, and yet suddenly you're you're in the position of eating more than anyone's ever consumed in their lives. Copable amounts, yes. <laughs> That's extraordinary. But is there, are you impervious? Do you, do you taste it? Yes, and it hurts. It hurts so much. But the pain after the first one is the exact same as after the hundredth. It just hurts like crazy. <laughs> Where does it hurt? Uh, it starts off at the lips and they go numb and then it just spreads back from there. So it goes through the tongue and then once you eat it your throat starts oh. to burn and it just sits in your gut and you start to sweat but you know that you can't touch anything with your hands because that's just on fire as well you wipe your nose and then flame it's like lava it's wow. not flames and it just no <laughs> you're trying your best not to touch anything or go near your face yeah uh, and you're not allowed to drink no and you don't practice because you just turn up yeah, I don't like chilli, so it's not as if I have it in my meals at home or practice or anything like that. It, it hurts. I don't <laughs> want to do it more than I have to. And this has just been for fun, and that's what it's all about. So I get beaten. Well, well cool, I've had a good run at this. And if not, oh, well, let's see how far I can um, go. It is fascinating because, of course, I mean, there'd be many people listening who would kind of wonder about subjecting oneself to this level of discomfort and pain. But I suppose on the, on the flip side, there is a sense of uh, exhilaration or euphoria. Is that something that you encounter as well? It, it's more from the crowd. When they're all chanting your name, when they're all getting behind you, that boosts you up and that's, for me, what makes it worthwhile. Yes, it hurts like crazy, but I'm weird and th- that's better than the pain. You know. How long does it take for like the burning sensation to subside like after the competition's done? Competitions aren't too bad, but when I did that world record, I had the burning sensation in the mouth for three days and it took me over a week before I could taste coffee again. And I got that out of my system as soon as the competition was over. They had my own private room that I could 
go and evacuate and get it all out, but it, it didn't work. So, yeah, three days is usually about the rough estimate. Now, I've got a young daughter as well, yep. so I'm not allowed to go near her after a competition because it's all sweating out and the lips are on fire, so I've got to test kiss my wife, make sure she's... No, no, it's still too hot, you can't touch your daughter yet. <laughs> and there is always medical help on standby? Always, yes. And what do you observe in the other contestants like Simon? What, how do you relate <laughs> yeah. to their experience as opposed to what you're experiencing? I don't sweat for some reason. I didn't know that either, but I can feel the pain that they're going through. And I know it, it's weird. It's like running a marathon and tripping over. I just get up. You'll be right. Don't spew. You'll be all good. You've been training for this. You'll be right. Push through. And that's what I said. They're pushing their body to the absolute limit. And then they trip over and just spew everywhere. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I think people who are thinking about heading along should be prepared that it can be, yeah, it can get quite extreme on this stage. But in terms of the training that you were mentioning and preparation ahead of ahead of participating, I was reading a lot of forums about what you should do in terms of lining your stomach. You know, buttermilk, for example, or bananas, or even some antacids. Um, but mental training as well, sort of uh, trying to dissociate from from physical and, and pain sort of oriented responses. Are there any sort of tips that you have for people as to how you prepare? I don't prepare. I'm lactose intolerant, so I can't line my stomach with milk or anything like that. Um, I've been told antacids afterwards. Um, that could help. I can't give any training advice because I don't do any myself. Um, apparently, you can build up a tolerance to it. So people that have been in competitions with, they eat this all day, every day, and so your tolerance level builds up, and so you can eat that amount till you get to the hot stage type thing. Man, my tolerance is that. As soon as I eat, oh, radio doesn't work. I'm showing the tiny little fingers. Um, it... It hurts and it burns and uh, that's why I don't eat it mm. normally because you want to enjoy your food, you want to taste what's mm. there in front of you. As soon as it's spicy, I can't taste anything or for the rest of the night anyway. So Take us through the rounds and are they all the same to you or is there increasing difficulty? Yes, there's increasing difficulty because it starts off as the jalapeno or a capskin or something small like that, just for a bit of fun with the crowd, just for a bit of fun with the contestants as well. And then they start to get bigger and better and heavier. And then obviously we're going to try to have three rounds, best of these three people come on to the final. So you want to have good contestants in the final. So if there's two in the final heat, that's when they start pumping on righty-ho, then you two aren't going through we want to see a winner what can we get out of you mm. but at the same stage you don't want to start off with the hottest and go from there when i go to new zealand i hope they start off at the hottest and then just keep on getting bigger and better and stronger but we'll see how that goes and are you a bit of a so you kind of thrive off the crowd are you a bit of a showman greg when you're out there do you kind of put on a bit of a show are you standing up on stage or are you more focused more focused oh, okay. see i always I only really did two competitions mm. here in Melbourne and I always thought I was the underdog because I don't train, blah, 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 blah. I can't do that anymore. I, mm. I am the big dog now. so I, But it's not in my nature to come screaming and boasting, hey, look at me, I'll probably just walk out on stage, give a wave, hi, how are you? 
super weird afterwards. Everyone wanted to see me and have a selfie with me or, mm. oh, remember me from last year? No, man, I was on a chilly high. I don't <laughs> remember you, but I'm happy to have a selfie with you. And so that's super weird. Have you been asked to be studied medically in any way? Yeah. No. <laughs> Not for eating chilies anyway. <laughs> okay. And uh, what do you do for Smoko? Uh, fruit. I love my fruit, so usually just pack on a whole heap of that. I heard you say bananas. I don't know the if that will work or whatnot, but I'm happy to give it a go. Yeah, I'm not yeah. quite sure. And please don't take any advice from me. You seem like you've got everything sorted. So this <laughs> yeah. is just something I read on one forum somewhere. So. I did ask, uh, get told once, do I um, eat honey? Someone told me that I ate honey, and that lines my stomach and tongue, and that's why I can eat so much. Never heard of that before, but I'm happy to give it a go. Yeah. If you lose, would you retire? Yes. Well, yeah, I've said it now. I do, did this for fun. Did the, and when I first won the competition, I made a promise with my wife, I'm not chasing this all over the world. That's just want to see, blah, blah, blah. And I, this is going to be my second trip to New Zealand. Yep. And it's starting to be, oh, well, you're chasing it now, you want this. And, uh, yeah, I... I said I want my shot at the top. This is my shot at the top. I either win and go, you beauty, here you go. Everyone else who wants fun at it, I'm there, I got to the top. And if I didn't, I can say, you know what, I got there, I tried. I don't want to train and don't want to see this full time. And I've got other aspects of my life that I enjoy and want to spend time on rather than eating chilies. It's been a hell of a ride. Yeah. I've had a lot of fun with it. So, beautiful, yeah. balanced, philosophical perspective you have and very impressive, all of yeah. your accomplishments. Is there a mecca? Where's, where's the chilli Where's chili central in the world? Where are they most proud of their hot sauces? And the UK Chili Queen was queen of the chili world for, I don't know, three, four years. I never got my shot at her at the top. She retired. But I think the UK and that area around there, they seem to really thrive. You'd think America as well, but... I don't follow it. I don't know. I don't. I know who I'm going up against in New Zealand, but mm. I don't know his journey of how many people he beat in America or how many people he beat overseas to get to that. So, do you let your daughter come and watch, or is it too full on? Uh, when we do the nationals, they've been held at home on screen yep. via Zoom or something like that. So she makes a brief appearance and comes through. But because the Scoble units are going off the top, like the um, Carolinas 2.2 in the nationals, we can condense it and get those cap stations right down to the fine art. So they're going into 30 million per chocolate bar, per <laughs> little pack and stuff like that. So, yeah, you don't want your daughter around anything like that. She no. thinks it's a lolly. Next thing you know, it's oh, on don't. her hands, face. Well, no, so yeah. So registrations are open. Simon did it a couple of years ago. <laughs> Any, it's open. All comers, please to, come on down. And that's what you did. It was just a whim. Yeah. Uh, MelbourneHotSauce.com, and there must be a global network of food eaters who want you on board, but you seem pretty indifferent. Not indifferent, uh, but yeah, like, but just along for the ride. Yeah. Um, and yes, the fanfare and the. 
Chile community is huge and they're really supportive and they're a lot of fun. So that's why I don't want to spit in their face and go, oh, this blah, blah. It's not. It is serious mm. and I'm having so much fun doing it. Wow. So. Good luck, Greg. The Melbourne Chile Eating Championship, Australia's longest-running premier annual competitive eating competition. It's held at the B East, 80 Ligon Street, and it's Saturday, April 29. Doors open at 12 p.m. We've been speaking with reigning champion Greg Eingutz Barlow. Good luck, mate. Thank you. Triple R. Salty Croc, it's Friday Funny Bugger and Comedy Icon, Geraldine Hickey. Hello, Geraldine. Hello, everybody. Um, oh, yeah. Look at me, like, already not knowing how things work here. Yeah, I feel like we're in the wrong seats. Mm. Just quickly well, yeah, some you are sitting in, in my seat. Yeah. Uh, but I'm a Friday Funny Bugger. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. When I started this segment many years ago, <laughs> yeah. I was like, one day I hope I'll be a Friday funny bugger. And, here we are. Here we and are. here I am, full circle. <laughs> um, speaking of full circles, or not really, Ellie, can you fill me in on this um, ultra marathon? Runner in the car. Oh, yeah. Oh, I she, love it. She was 40Ks into an ultra marathon. She claims a friend drove by and offered her a lift and she hopped in <laughs> and is blaming jet lag and miscommunication. Was the miscommunication, I'm just driving past, don't don't get in, I'm not giving you a lift. I thought, I thought she said get in. Um, compared that to, I um, love an ultramarathon story. Anyway, no, here's my link. to. Uh, do you guys know about um, the marathon runner who slipped and broke her pelvis? No. Okay, so her name's um, Danelle... Danelle Balangi, mm. Balangi, maybe. Um, and I first came across her in one of my favourite shows, I Shouldn't Be Alive. <laughs> Do you know? Oh, I guess I remember you too. Yeah. One of, it was <laughs> Kath and I ripped through them in lockdown <laughs> and I've found myself on many occasions to be in my life going, this could end up on being <laughs> on the famous TV show, <laughs> not that famous, <laughs> I Shouldn't Be Alive. But it, so this Danelle, she was on I Shouldn't Be Alive. And so compared, you know, getting a lift to – and Danelle was just out for a training run. She oh, was just wow. out for a little run and she slipped on some black ice. She was in Utah, I think, and so fell down a canyon, smashed her pelvis, oh. right? So – but she said as soon as she could work out that she wasn't um, paralysed, she went, oh, that's okay, I'll crawl out. <gasps> Five hours, she crawled a quarter of a mile. Wow! I don't, I don't know the the system, the conversion, but that doesn't seem very far in five hours. Because I think there's the four minute mile, and she went five hours in in a quarter in, of a mile. Wasn't yeah. personal best, yeah. Yeah, at all. But she did have a dog with her because she quite often – and this is just a training run. She's just going out for a little run with her, with her dog, Taz. And so she had Taz with her and um, so she tried to crawl out and because it was, you know, desert. So the, at night time, temperature was going to plummet. But she – so she had um, 
she knew that if she fell asleep, it was most likely that she would get hypothermia and just die in the cold. And so to keep herself awake and to keep warm, she just did little stomach crunches. What? <laughs> now I'll get a lift. Thanks. <laughs> Totally. This is what people are doing out there to complete it's, these things. What, what an inspiration! That is extraordinary. She just so three days she was <gasps> she was stuck there, like before she got rescued. And of course, who you know, they, because search parties were out looking for her, couldn't find her. And then Taz, she let Taz go because Taz was great for you know body warmth. Mm. But then she let Taz. Oh come on, go out and you know. And because he's like, let me go. And, you know, I think she got to the point where it's like, I've got to let you go because I'm just going to die. But Taz yeah. found the rescuers. Amazing. Come here. And then took, took, he took the rescuers. You would have been pulling your eyes out or, or not. Or did they How recreate could you it? not? I'm willing up hearing about it. <laughs> One thing I love about the uh, this new ultra marathon runner is that she says she was an idiot for accepting a medal and a wooden trophy for third. So she clearly could have, I presume, won. She got third. <laughs> <laughs> she got a lift. Oh, no, that's – but also that's – maybe that's the miscommunication oh, as well. Yes. Uh, Just drop, drop me up a bit. For, oh, no, this will do. <laughs> yes. This will do. I'll get out of here. Thanks. the wrong <laughs> Just spot. Exactly. Yeah. How's your uh, running regime going? Is that – Oh, well, it's up and down because um, in exciting news in my so – I've, I've got arthritis. Oh, no. I found out and I'm still – it's I'm yet to be – oh, just life admin. So I've got a, an appointment with a rheumatologist coming up um, but not till next month. So I, I just kind of um, – just have these flare-ups mm. every now and it, it, Have you ever heard of Raynard's syndrome? New I, to me. It was new to me as well until I saw it happening to me. And I didn't know. So it's just like the, your extremities, um, you know, you don't get blood there. So when it gets cold, I get you get like white fingertips and they sometimes oh, yes, go blue. Oh, yes, I've so. had that happen before. Yeah, oh, but have just you? one finger. Yeah, right. Yeah. I got it. Like I was just – I was in Adelaide and I was just at, was cold, you know, in, during the day quite warm, and then at temp at night time was dropped. So I was at the Adelaide Fringe, so I'd walk in, and I just like was in the looked at my hands, and there was like red, and then just like white, like I was wearing fingerless gloves, mm. red fingerless gloves with white, just white tips on the top. And I was just like, what is going on? What is this? And I, you know, and I'd been on texting because I'd been away a lot and been texting Kath, going, hey, look. I'm I'm in pain. What, I'm like, what's this pain? I don't know why I'm in pain. And she's like, it just, maybe you're getting old. And I'm like, I, this is, no, this is different. Yeah. Please give me some sympathy. And then, you know, she, I, she'd be like, just try and explain what, the, because the pain that you're talking about, it's just like generic kind of pain. Like I get pain. I'm like, you get pain. Because you broke your back once, you have that's you know where that pain is coming from. I don't know why all of a sudden I can't use my wrist anymore. Like what is what is? And then I and then I had finally had this proof of something. There was something wrong with me, and so I sent a photo to her. I'm like, look, what's this? And she's like, okay, I'll make an appointment with the doctors for you. Like this is, I'll get this. Yeah, this is not right. This is not. But it is. It's just this Raynard's thing, and um. And anyway, so and how do you how do you do? 
do they, how do they treat it? Do they sit you down and say you've got arthritis? I mean, no. Oh, how's this? I went to the doctor and that, oh, and you know, Kath was just like, just when you go in, think, you know, just remember all the symptoms and how to explain it properly and blah, blah, blah. So I had photos and stuff. And so the rain, and they I said, oh, yeah, and this, this thing with my hand, I didn't even know it was rain. I, like, I just went, there's this thing with my hand. Like, look at that. That's, and they went, oh, yeah, that's Raynard syndrome. So just, yeah, get some good gloves and gloves and maybe those, um, those pocket hand warmers. Yeah. That's it. You just oh, live amazing. with it now. You just have it. Wow. Isn't that what? And I go, how did I get it? And they go, we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody like knows. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody knows. And so the arthritis, they're like, um, so I've, you know, been the first time they're like, yeah, it could be this. We'll go for it, go for a blood test. And then, you know, the blood test, they're looking for something and I didn't have it, but then I had to get another blood test and go, oh, it's slightly raised. And I'm like, but also look at me and how Hello. much pain I'm And then there was like, and I spoke to, you know, um, fa- there's a family history of it that I didn't know about and, and stuff. And anyway, so, but I wanted to go for a run the other day and but my I just had a flare up and my knee was swollen. Right. I'm like, oh well, that's. I wonder to what extent you'll be using it as an excuse, because I, I have... don't want to use it as no, an excuse. No. Mm. I don't want to, and I'm like, am I going to have to buy like a, a, an a, what are they an elliptical machine oh, or something? Yes. Elliptical. Like, yes. Yeah. I just like I like the thing I loved about running is that it was you can just go anywhere. It, wherever I was in travel, I'd just take my sneakers mm. and a very good bra and off I went. Yeah. That's all That's all I need. Whereas now I'm like, I don't want to have to, oh, you know, put fond bathers and <laughs> yeah. go to yeah, the totally. pool and stuff. Get wet. No. Yeah. Life is swings and roundabouts, isn't it? So, you, you know, arthritis, but you get married. Yeah. Like, you've oh, got to take the good with the bad. Absolutely. Like, th- yeah, things are still going well. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still having a very good time. And, uh, yeah, the show is coming. I'm doing three more shows at the Comedy Festival. I'll tell you what, you know, um, it, it's been wonderful doing the Comedy Festival and I've been be able to see heaps of things. Like, just ten shows. Mm. This fest, just ten shows only. Like, we went to a much bigger venue. I'm in the Comedy Theatre. What a beautiful experience that is from the moment you rock up. Mm. You've got someone going, oh, hello, welcome. You can buy... Um, a glass of wine, and they go, Do you want a big wine or a little wine? And Sizes. You get, you get a big wine. <laughs> and then also, you've got, because a big wine, they just, I think they put two glasses in one cup. And so, if you want to, like, you know, with your mate, go, Let's get two. And so, no, actually, I don't recommend <laughs> drinking. Yeah. I don't recommend it. But you, you could do it with, no, I don't. But. <laughs> You could double fist. Can I ask Geraldine, how do you find the audiences in those bigger venues? Because I've gone to see some, like, bigger acts in the last week Mm. and it's wild. Like, it just feels different. Like, the audiences are maybe, like, chatting a bit more at the back, like, commentary because it's that bigger space where they feel like they can kind of... Get away with... Get away with it, yeah. Well, I don't hear them chatting at the back, so it's fine. You're up on stage (laughs) under the lights. But I did see... I saw Edo's show and I sat in the back row... Yeah. And it's phenomenal how th- that theatre is. It's like you're still there. Like mm. it's so, it's so personal. But you know, I don't hear the chatting. So it's oh, what a win-win situation. Yeah. I love it. We're doing well. What's yeah. the biggest juxtaposition from say comedy theatre dressing room to 
backstage somewhere else in your life previously, like jammed up against a brick wall pretending yeah. they can't notice you. Oh, okay. So, yeah, backstage room yeah. at the Melbourne Town Hall, you just, yeah, you just sit behind the curtain <laughs> waiting for everyone to come in. And you can hear them. Yeah, you can hear them and it says, oh, welcome to the... And you just whoop, pull back, hello. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then at the comedy theatre, it's like, oh, my God, it's so... It's so wild, and I love it so much. And how do you how do you stay grounded? How do we? I don't. My you, head uh, is. I'm off. <laughs> you're on, you're no, how do I stay grounded? No, finish what you were. Well, oh. no, I suppose arthritis helps, but, mm. uh, but but in terms of you know the, how the problem is, well, how did this this every this comedian that we love and is relatable is now got horses. Yeah, you, I just I married into the horse <laughs> horse life because <laughs> you know they're cats, you know horses. But you know, and I, I've I helped feed them, mm. especially like during lockdown. You remember you could only leave for like for at, care, care for animals, mm. and I was like, well, I'm caring for the animals. Yeah, I've got to drive down to Tar- Tarwin Low and feed the horses. Yeah, so that's, that's, right. that's what I've got. What to a do. time at your wedding! It was such a I got a tour of the house and it was it felt oh, like yeah. I was going into a I a don't museum? know a museum <laughs> yeah I got to see where Geraldine broadcast for all those years with me yeah. uh, it was terribly moving and touching and then cut kicked us out quick because we weren't allowed in the house yeah <laughs> yeah, we, yeah we for the wedding it was like nobody was allowed in the house except for special people yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's all very exciting. We've got the quiz. Do you, well, any chance that you... Oh, no, you got to go. Look, well, that's fine. Oh, man, I've got nothing on. <laughs> all right, beautiful. Yes. Geraldine Hickey, uh, of course we've got horses. There are a couple of shows left. Three. What? Friday, 9.30 and Saturday, Sunday, 2 p.m. Yeah. I cater for all needs. That's Late night beautiful. owls, early birds. Beautiful. <laughs> Love your work, Jez. Thanks. Woo! Ah, that's right. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.